On a scale of one to 10, how trusting are you of the people around you? And I don't mean like people around you right now, because that would be awkward, but people in general, like how trusting are you of them? And for me, as I think about that, the best way to answer it isn't maybe by assigning a number, but more by thinking of a story. And what comes to mind for me is about seven years ago, just as I was really immersing myself in youth ministry stuff, because that's one of my areas here at North Cross, I went to a youth ministry conference. That was a, it was a really big deal. And they were coming to this area. Churches from all over were, were converging. And I was excited because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was just excited to learn from people who knew what I didn't know. So I got to the conference, I'm, I'm situated, I, I, found my, I found a seat, I got my notepad out, I'm ready for this thing to begin, and this old guy starts walking down the aisle toward me, and he asks me too many questions. He says, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your role? Tell me about your church. And I think by the fourth question, when he saw the look of distrust in my face, he politely said, thanks for coming, and he moved along. And I thought, well, that was weird. He moves on to someone else. They have a great conversation. They're excited to see him. I'm like, oh, that's, that's weird. And so I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Five, 10 minutes later, the conference begins and this same guy walks up onto stage and begins to give the presentation for the entire day. This, this was the guru of youth ministry. This was the guy that everybody came to see. This was the guy who invented modern youth ministry and who has written several books about it. And since that day, I have listened to several podcasts where people begged him to come and talk about youth ministry, and I've read several of his books. But hey, no regrets. (laughs) On a scale of one to 10, how trusting are you of people? Here's the ironic thing about trust. The only way you can know if someone is trustworthy is to go ahead and put your trust in them. How about this? Imagine you had taken one person at their word. Maybe you've got your own story where you just didn't trust someone. You didn't know them. There was no established relationship. There was no context for trust. And so you decided not to step out in trust with them. What did you miss out on? This is what we're going to get into today, but I want to jump to the first fill-in just to give some context for where we're headed. Trustworthiness is measured by exercising trust. Just like you you might want to know if a lake or a pond is frozen, you're going to exercise a little trust in it first. And so it is with people, with relationships, in order to know if someone is trustworthy, you You need to exercise some trust. You need to put some trust in them. But what happens when there's a person, for whatever reason, they've lost their trustworthiness for you? And I think for some of us, there's a quick application in there where maybe there's someone in your life where you just need to trust. You need to exercise a little trust and see what happens. But that's not what we're getting at today. Because for some of us, The trustworthiness we we wrestle with is not about another person. But what if the person you've lost trust with is God? This is part two of a series that we're calling Signs. And in just a minute, we're going to jump into the wedding at Cana. But first, I want to show you this amazing graphic that we put together for it. 
Um, signs that, like uh, Pastor Ben mentioned, if you were part of this service already, is a, a series all about working through some of the seven miracles that John recorded in his book of the Bible. As he told the story of Jesus, really the backbone or the thread that he weaved through the entire thing were seven miracles. And he goes through them sequentially to kind of tell the story of why he believed that God was worthy of our trust and why Jesus was worthy of his trust. And he spoke to an audience at the end of the first century who were starting to lose their trust in Jesus. I mean, it was a big claim. Jesus is God? Who believes that anymore? And so as John wrote this letter, he specifically wrote it to people who were maybe not so sure if if Jesus was worthy of their trust anymore. And so he just records this series of stories telling you, well, here's why this person trusted. Here's why this person trusted. And the overarching narrative in the whole story is John is saying, here's why I believe and trust that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. So we're picking up today right where we left off last week. And well, last week, oops, I'm sorry, I go back. We talked about the wedding at Cana where Jesus showed up, he and his disciples, and they, they were there, they perform, um, he performed a miracle, turning water into wine. And if you weren't here, I highly encourage you, uh, go back online on our website. You can listen or watch part one of Signs. There was a lot of great groundwork that Ben laid last week. And we're gonna pick it up right there. Jesus was at this wedding in Cana, and now I'm going to show you a map of kind of where all they went. It looks like a blank slide, but there really is something there. Um, So uh, they were at Cana, and hopefully you can kind of see the map. And then after this wedding at Cana, they went up to Capernaum and stayed there for a few days. Getting too excited. I'm good. I accidentally muted it. Can we edit this from the online archive later? (laughs) The miracle of video editing. They were at Cana. After the wedding, they went up to Capernaum for a little while, um, just uh, hung out for a bit. And then after that was the annual festival of the Passover. And so what all Jews would do in this area was they would all travel way down to Jerusalem. And for context, uh, the, the city or the metro of the Twin Cities could easily fit between this, this area here. Um, this would be about a 60, 70 mile trip if you were going in a straight line. And so they traveled all the way down to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And John records that while they were there, Jesus performed many signs, miracles. He taught people and people started to see like this is not just a carpenter from Nazareth. There's something different about this guy. So after the Passover, Jesus and his disciples traveled back up to Galilee, but on the way, they stopped in Samaria. And there's a longer story here. If you have time this week, I encourage you to read through John chapters one through four, because it'll fill in some gaps that we don't have time to hit here today. But as they traveled up, Jesus stopped in Samaria, and these people would not have been in Jerusalem for the Passover. Those in Samaria had their own place to go. It was a mountain just outside of Sychar, down to the southwest, a mountain called Gerizim. And that's where they would celebrate these these festivals and these feasts. And so Jesus is passing through this region. They had never, they, they, they didn't see what Jesus did down here. They haven't even heard about Jesus. But Jesus has this crazy encounter in Sychar with this woman 
who is at a well. He strikes up a conversation asking for water and in the process of their conversation, he tells her her life history that she had never shared with him before. And just imagine that someone is standing next to you at the coffee station and they say, I know what you did last summer. And all of the summers that have ever been a part of your life. Like they just tell you your history, like all of the embarrassing things you don't normally lead with. And this woman, as she hears him tell her story, she says, you, you're not just a rabbi. You're not just a prophet. I believe you are the Messiah. So she tells the entire town of Sychar. And this is what happened. John chapter four, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why did they believe in him? Because of the woman's testimony. They trusted him. They trusted that this really was God with them because of what this woman told them. Her testimony was, he told me everything I ever did. And that's pretty compelling evidence that this person is God. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed for two days. Now, why did they want him to stay? What was Jesus doing during those two days? He wasn't performing miracles. In fact, that's not what he led with. When he came to Sychar, he didn't say, everyone gather around, I'm gonna show you some pretty cool stuff. He didn't do any miracles. What did he do? He talked. And people took him at his word. And because of his words, many more became believers. And then John kind of wraps it up in the next, next verse. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And as John records this, he invites you, the reader, he invites us, the reader, to, to compare this with what's about to happen next. Here the people in Sychar just took him at his word. They believed him without any miracles. But check out what happens when Jesus leaves Samaria and goes back to his home area. So after the two days in Sychar, Jesus left for Galilee, up north where he was from. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He's warning those following him, I know that we had a great time in Samaria, but it might not be this way around the people who know me, which was weird, but... They had this familiarity with him that almost put up a barrier. So they get into the area, and here's what happens next. When they arrived in Galilee, the Galileans also welcomed him. Just like the Samaritans begged him to stay for two days, the Galileans are saying, please, come, stay. But why? Because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. They had traveled down to Jerusalem they saw the signs and the miracles and they wanted some of that up in Galilee. Now you start to see John just invite you to make a comparison. Those in Samaria welcomed him for two days just because they wanted to hear him. And those in Galilee welcomed him because they wanted to see some more tricks. And this is gonna help us understand the nature of Jesus' miracles and why he did them and now we're gonna get an opportunities to see the second miracle that Jesus did up in this area. So once more, he visited Cana in Galilee and John fills in the blank in case you forgot what happened in the last two chapters. He says, this is where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official 
whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And Capernaum is about 17 miles away in a straight line. So you'd imagine this is at least a day's walk, if not more. And we don't know much about this royal official. Literally, the name just means royalty. He could have been a relative of King Herod. That's what some people think. Or he could have just been an official in the army. This was a man of importance. And there was something important on his mind. His son was sick. And so he came to Jesus for help. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him. And I want to posit that word because begged isn't just like a one-time thing, like, hey, could you please help? But the word implies that there was this ongoing pleading. Please help. Please help. Here's my story. Here's who my son is. Please help. Please help. Here's what we're dealing with. There was an ongoing plea for him to come and heal his son, who was not just sick, not just under the weather, not just, oh yeah, he's dealing with some, some issue in life, but no, he was close to death. Can you imagine what it would be like to be that dad, at least a day's journey from home, knowing that your son, whom you love, is close to death? We're not told why he was away from home, whether it was he was on duty, but it seems more likely that he had made this journey, this trip, because he trusted that Jesus could help. So he comes to Jesus with this heartbreaking plea. Please come help. My son is close to death. Please come help. And, and Jesus responds with something that seems unordinary, but... There is so much we can learn from these things when Jesus says something that's unexpected. Here's what Jesus replied with. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. In other words, Jesus did not come to gather people around and amaze them and shock them with great miracles. That was his secondary thing. That was his side dish to complement the main course. The main thing was simply to share a message and to talk. So Jesus made this observation. He says, I know what's gonna happen here. You, you will never believe unless you see me do something. So the royal official persisted. He said, sir, and this is so crazy because this is a man of authority, a man with a title, and yet he refers to this young 30-year-old up-and-coming rabbi with this word of respect, sir. In some translations, it's actually translated as Lord. This man recognized Jesus was different. Sir, come down before my child dies. I wonder if you've ever prayed something similar. God, come down to help. For him, come down was elevation because Cana to Capernaum, you kind of went downhill, so they said, come down. But for us, when we ask for God's help, it's more of an intervention on a divine level. Come down into my life to address something that has no fix. Come down to heal something that I cannot fix. Here's the thing. Sometimes when we ask God to come down and help, what we're left with is this feeling Sometimes we feel left down or let down. My question, what were you expecting God to do? This, this man was pleading with Jesus to come down to Capernaum to heal his son who was near death. 
what, were, what have you been pleading for God to do in your life? Maybe you got real specific. You said, God, here's the problem. Here's the solution. I've thought this all through. Here's, here's my recommendation. Go ahead and stamp it if you would. Just make it happen. Like, I know how this works. And this man, like, he didn't waste any time. He said, I've got this all worked out. We've got a place for you to stay. Just come down to Capernaum. Help my son. He's near death. And I believe, Jesus, that you are the only hope. What expectations have you been having for God? This man's hope, his expectation was that Jesus would just come for this 17-mile trip, maybe 20 if the the roads weren't perfectly straight, and come to Capernaum to help his son. But Jesus, as he looked back, he said, "I, I didn't come here just to give you the dessert, the side dish. I came here so that you would believe who I am. Sometimes we can get in our own hearts and minds these expectations that we place on God, that he is here for the side dish. He's here to make our lives better, to to heal us of anxiety. He's here to cure us of our diseases. He's here to do the things that any loving father on earth here would do for their their child. And we have these basic expectations. We kind of write them out and say, here, God, here's what any loving God should do. Here's what I know. With any relationship, unmet expectations will erode your trust. And maybe you've experienced that in the past. Something you thought was just a basic expectation for God, he did not meet. And your response to that was, well, wait a minute. Why am I believing in you anyway? Sometimes the unmet expectations that you have before God are the things that you wrestle with throughout your life. He didn't show up. He didn't come down. He did not heal. Rather, it feels the opposite. He came down in vengeance. He came down in anger. And I feel cursed more than I feel blessed. Maybe some of you have a story about unmet expectations with God. And maybe for some of you listening, that's why you're not sure what you believe about God anymore. And this miracle that that John records in John chapter four is an amazing opportunity for us to see really what we should expect from God and why it is that Jesus came. So again, the, the father asks, sir, please come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, no, you just go. Just start walking. A day's worth of walk, maybe a day and a half, just go And I'm going to tell you that your son will live. And maybe the royal official would think this was a trick or a test. Kind of like, you know, Jacob wrestling with God. Maybe this was a place where this royal official should wrestle with Jesus and say, no, I won't leave you until you do what I ask. But here Jesus is... He's he's threading a needle between showing compassion for the people who are in need, but also showing people that he didn't come to do miracles. He said, go. I want you to trust me that your son will live. Now, here's the incredible thing. This, this, this royal official didn't see a thing yet, and yet the man took Jesus at his word, and he went home. He took Jesus at his word, Jesus' word, and he went home. He didn't wait for him to obey his word, 
Jesus, this, these are my terms, this is what you will do, but rather he took Jesus at his word. And I think that when it comes to the, your, your faith walk with God, this is something we need to exercise on a regular basis. Yes, sharing your requests and your expectations for God, but be, being willing to step back and say, okay, I will take you at your word for me. I will hold you to your promises, not my expectations. And so, he began, I can't imagine this, he began this long journey home. Imagine that walk. Each step wondering, should I, should I turn back and just really make sure Jesus said what I thought I heard him say? Am I really going to go home and find my son alive? And each step, each step wondering. So while he was on the way home, his servants met him with some news. Again, just imagine seeing them run towards you. Something had happened. But it was good news. They came to him with the news that his boy was living. And not just, hey, he's still hanging in there. Or he's starting to turn the corner. But no, he's living as normal. Like he's eating, drinking, playing, running. It's like nothing ever happened. And as, and as the, the man hears this, I'm sure he responded with all sorts of questions. Like, no, wait, like, what's he doing? Like, is he normal? Is, how's he feeling? Does he have a fever? Are his aches gone? I'm sure he had all sorts of questions. John records the main one. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, like, what time was it? They said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever just left him. And this man is thinking back in his memory, one in the afternoon, one in the afternoon. That's when I left. That's when I departed. That's when Jesus said, your son will live. The father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So, as he told the story to his household about all the things that had happened, the result was he and his household believed. And as John would tell you this story, if he were here telling you this story, he would say, I know some of you are wondering, I don't know if I can trust God, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus. But here's why this young man or this royal official believed. And here's why this household believed. Because they didn't just hear the word of Jesus, but they saw the authority of his miracles. When Jesus did miracles, it wasn't the main show. It was the side dish. It was the side dish to complement the main course of his word that he wanted them to hear. I'll put it this way for number three. Jesus did miracles to emphasize his words, to draw attention to his words. His words were the main thing. His, what he declared, who he, he, uh, who he claimed to be, that was the main thing. And I just want to pause right here because a lot of times we do the opposite of that. A lot of times we use our words to make our actions seem better. Jesus used his actions to draw more attention to his words. Uh, just a, a quick story that kind of brings this to life for me was back in the year 2000. Sorry, that reminds me of an old skit back in the day. In the year 2000, my uh, sister Jeanette got married and she got married on... April 1st, and it, by the way, this is a side note, but if you ever want to test your trust for another person, 
just plan to get married on April Fool's Day and see how it works out. But they did get married. Everything went off great. It was an awesome celebration. One of the things was uh, my, my parents brought their 1948 Pontiac to the wedding as kind of the main car. Like it would escort them from the, the wedding to the reception. It was kind of one of the highlights of the week. And they've done, done this for, for numerous weddings now in the family. And I'll never forget, we were driving around in Atlanta area and there's a bunch of us in this old 1948 Pontiac. And my daddy loves his cars. You know, they don't have any mufflers or anything because loud is good. Um, beast of a car, beast of an engine. And he was so proud of this thing. Well, at one of the stoplights, there was another person who pulled up next to us. They're kind of checking out the car. And so what does my dad do? The guy's in his car. He's got a pretty decent car too. I don't know, don't remember what type it was because I was sitting in the middle of the back seat because I'm the youngest. It's not good to be the youngest, but anyway, so we kind of get into this not so crazy dress. I don't think any laws were broken, but they just kind of, you know, kind of went off from the green light. And this other guy just smoked us. And so we get to the next light. My dad rolls down his window and he's like, yeah, I've got six people in the car and I'm pulling the air conditioning. Otherwise I would have beat you. And the other guy's like, ha ha, yeah, that's, that's cool. And they kind of, you know, have this fun little interaction. But this reminds me of, you know, whenever we lose something, whenever we fail at something, what do we do? We use our words to make it seem not so bad. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had just disobeyed God. Adam, what have you done? Well, it, was, it was nothing. Eve, Eve did it. Eve, what have you done? She used her words to cover up. Oh, it was, it was the serpent over here. We use our words to make it seem like what we do isn't such a big deal. And that's one thing for losing a race. Let's get the Pontiac off the screen. I know some of you guys are drooling over it. That's one thing for losing a race, but it's another thing when you're confronted with sin. You were angry. Yeah, but you know, if, if you saw the things that I went through that day, it, it's not that big of a deal. We use our words to minimize our actions. You were really selfish yesterday. Yeah, but you know what? I've got some things that this world owes me. We use our words to minimize our failures. And sometimes even the things you wrestle with in your own heart, the guilt, you try to rationalize away with your own words of wisdom. And sometimes it works. Most of the time, it doesn't. Jesus used his works to draw emphasis to his words. We use our words to try to make our failures seem not so bad. So where do we stand with this? Ultimately, when Jesus came and confronted people, the harshness of his word was simply this, that you have fallen short. See, I can do all things. I can do these miracles, but here's what I really want you to, Here's the main dish. You have fallen short in your relationship with God. Your sin condemns you. There's nothing you can say to change that but I can. And when people were brought to him, guilty, full of shame, full of sin, not even the people who were trying hard yet, Jesus would come to them and say, 
your sins are forgiven. And it worked. People knew he had the authority to say that because of the miracles he had performed. And that's the miracle of what he gets to do for you today also. People who are full of sin. There's no need for us to minimize our faults with our own words because the word of God declares that you are forgiven. I think the only thing that we need today is is just prove it. Like, how do we know for sure that this really is God's message to me? How do I know what Jesus' promises are and how they apply to me? Like, there's so many different messages out there. How do we know it's true? And John, if he were here, he would say, I'm so glad you asked that question. Here's what he would say. John 1.14, the word isn't just some echo you've heard throughout time, but the word actually became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's answer to your sin is not just a declaration, but it's an incarnation. Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us so that through his life and death, he could earn for you what he declares over you. You are forgiven. And that's God's word to you. So can I encourage you with something this week? When it comes to your relationships in life, there's probably some very trustworthy people that you just haven't quite trusted yet, and maybe you're missing out on a world-renowned youth ministry partnership that could have happened with a great leader. Or maybe it's just a step forward in your relationship with someone that you love. Can you imagine what would happen if you trusted in God? And not just a test the water, like, can I do this? But if you were in a place where you could hold on to the promises that God has declared over you and to live with them, there is some power. Not just in the miracles, but power in that word for you. So I'll close with this encouragement. You have everything to gain when you take Jesus at his word. John, would, he would encourage you, if, if you're not sure, just try it, just test it. Just try living as if what God declares for you is true. God gives you the supernatural ability to receive his word as true. But John would invite you, would you live in it also? You have everything to gain when you take Jesus at his word. We're gonna pick it up there next week. I hope you can come back for Signs, part three, where we see the third miracle that John wanted people to remember and know so that they could believe that this Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Let's pray. Dear Savior, as you interacted with that royal official in Cana, he had so many questions and doubts and issues, uh, most of which was his son was near death and he could do nothing about it. As we look at this miracle you performed for him, it's just a shadow of the greater miracle you did for all of us. All of us, because of sin, are in death. We are condemned in our sin, and yet through your sacrifice and your declaration over us, you have declared us to be forgiven and loved by you. Help us to grow in our trust for you. Help us to go out and just live as if the words you declare for us are true. You are trustworthy. So give us the ability to put our trust in you even more this week. And as we meet with our our small groups, our growth groups this week, I pray that we would have great conversation and discussion about what it means 
to put our trust in you and just to be open about an area of life where we wanna do that better. And the motivation for this is simply a, a reflection of our thanks for you, Savior, over the love and the sacrifice you had for us. Be with us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.